Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs and dedicated to the proposition first articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a healthy foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm a contributor to the Bulwark and a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, uh, as well as an occasional professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. And I want to welcome back my, my partner in crime and strategery, Elliot Cohen. Elliot, welcome back. Uh, Eric, it's uh, it's good to be with you. I'm uh, also at, uh, teach at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and that uh, I may have a chair in strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and that's enough of titles. This week, uh, Eric, it's just you and me, mano a mano. Uh, yeah, the click and clack of national security affairs. We're going to do something a little different for this uh, episode of Shield of the Republic. Uh, we're going to start with the secret origin story of how Elliot and Eric came to know one another and to feel that they needed to do a podcast to share their views with the rest of the entire universe. So, Elliot, I think the, the, the way we met was through a common teacher the late uh, Al Bernstein, who was a student of one of my teachers uh, at Yale, the late Don Kagan, and uh, was also teaching at Yale when I was a graduate student from Cornell, where he spent a lot of his time as a professor before going on to the Naval War College, where he met you. Why don't you pick up the story about, of Al from there? Yeah, so I, I first encountered Al Bernstein, actually, when I was in the summer program at Cornell between my junior and senior years, and they brought in this uh, young associate professor of ancient history to give us a lecture about Roman strategy, and he was mesmerizing. Well, uh, fast forward, I, uh, there I am, and I'm an assistant professor at Harvard, and I got a call from this fellow named Al Bernstein at the U.S. Naval War College. He was the chairman of the strategy department. He invited me in to uh, give a lecture to the class. And then the next thing I know, I had a job offer and I left Harvard to go work for Al uh, for the next four years before coming permanently to Washington. And I followed him to Washington to uh, work in the then newly created policy planning staff of the Department of Defense. And I vividly remember Al saying, you two guys need to know each other. You're going to be like brothers, and uh, you know it took off. It took off from there. He was a he was a wonderful man, really. He was an ancient historian. He, uh, he could always uh, dial up the um, the Brooklyn, but of course he was a Cornell, Yale, Oxford educated ancient historian. He was a magnificent teacher, and he was a really inspiring leader. He was a guy who had his flaws. Uh, but also someone who was a joy to work with. And he inspires me down to the current day. Yeah, it's true. Honestly, I, you know, uh, rarely a day, go day goes by where I don't think about Al. He uh, was one of the three great teachers uh, to whom I uh, referred in the introduction to my, my PhD dissertation at Yale, along with uh, Walter Lefebvre, another uh, great uh, teacher who was in the same history department, actually, as, as Al at, at Cornell. And, I, you know, I still think about Al kind of perched on my shoulder occasionally, you know, counseling me, not just on matters historical, but on matters personal and, uh, and other things. He was uh, really a remarkable person. Yeah, and he was um, he was courageous. He lived through uh, Cornell in the uh, during some very difficult times in the late '60s. 
It was one of the reasons why he had a um, truly magnetic sort of relationship with the officers at the Naval War College. They could tell there was a uh, kindred spirit. And you no, know, he's still very much an inspiration. It's, in a way, he's an inspiration indirectly in the sense that you realize when you encounter somebody like Al and you look back on them 20, 30 years later, what an impact they had. And that, that encourages you to do your best as a teacher or as a boss, because you may not fully understand the impact that you have on somebody who's just starting out. And it can be quite profound the way Al's was. So there we were um, in the uh, uh, policy planning staff of the, uh, the Defense Department. We overlapped rather briefly, and then we ended up working together later on in the George W. Bush administration. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about what we did there. Yeah, I was in 2005 serving as uh, U.S. ambassador to Turkey when I got a phone call from Donald Rumsfeld asking me if I would like to come back and be considered for the position of Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And I did come back and interview with Rumsfeld, and to my somewhat to my surprise, because I didn't think the interview went that well, um, I I was offered the job. And then about a, a year and a half later, as I recall, you called me and told me that Condoleezza Rice, the then Secretary of State, had asked you to come be her counselor. Um, which uh, I was extremely enthusiastic about, uh, delighted to, to have you as a, an interagency partner. And the two of us actually uh, got to do a lot of work together because both of us, I think, were concentrating our time uh, on Iraq and Afghanistan, understandably. And the result was that we got to travel together quite a bit. Um, both to Iraq and Afghanistan, but also to London and Paris, where we both put in a lot of effort uh, trying to repair a lot of the relationships that had been damaged by the Iraq war and, and, and get those alliance relations back into the kind of shape that they needed to be in. Yeah. And uh, I will say during that experience, you really you taught me a lot about what it was what it is to do alliance maintenance and a kind of critical diplomacy that I think most people are not aware of. I, I often tell people that by the end of the George W. Bush administration in its second term, uh, we were actually on great terms with the French, uh, which is the case. And you deserve a disproportionate share of the credit for that. We got to work together on a couple of crises, including when we discovered that North Korean nuclear reactor in Syria. That was an education in itself. We, we got to try to mop up the damage after the, uh, the intelligence community decided to release a national intelligence estimate on Iran that A, I think was wrong, and B, ended up blindsiding our our allies. And then we just spent a lot of time, uh, you know, towards the end of the day when we were both frustrated, the, the uh, what was the machine called? A Tanberg would flash into life. And there you were complaining about some of the people you had to deal with. And I was complaining about some of the people I had to deal with. So the bottom line, of course, ended up being that you asked me to come uh, join you at Johns Hopkins SICE after I left government, uh, after we both left government at the end of the uh, Bush 43 administration, and actually was one of the greatest examples of bait and switch ever because you offered to team teach a course with me, which you did for all of one semester before then throwing me in the deep end and saying, okay, over to you, pal, you can do all this teaching on your own now. Although I, I have to say, I learned a lot. Uh, uh, you know, from a master teacher about how to uh, how to teach a class, and so uh, I, I'm grateful that you at least gave me the opportunity to do that before you know making me a solo. <laughs> well, I figured you could handle it. So let's look. We learned a lot from each other in a variety of ways. I think we're also quite similar in that we are uh, quite deeply rooted in history. You have your PhD in in history. I 
I wish that's where my PhD were, but I've I've certainly done a lot of uh, work in it. Um, in the intellectual history of the 20th century, it's, I remember uh, on those flights, particularly to Europe, you know, it would just be like a floating seminar about all kinds of things, both contemporary and historical. And that was also part of our, my education, at least. I, I'm curious, Eric, um, I mean, obviously we disagree about various things, usually at the margins. Um, I don't think we've had a really fundamental disagreement on foreign policy that, that I can remember. But, but if you were to say, you know, what do we have in common in terms of a way of understanding the world? Uh, and then maybe we can apply that prism to some of the things that we're looking at today, including even the uh, record of the, the Biden administration. You know, I think the thing that we share most, Elliot, is a sensibility. And it is the uh, a historian sensibility. I know you joke all the time that you're a historian trapped in the body of a political scientist. But I think yeah, you you have always in in your written work and and I certainly in uh, in what I've done in government have appreciated that it, it's impossible to understand present predicaments without understanding their origins and understanding the past and more broadly that a study of the past uh, truly is as I think it was John Seeley who said in the Victorian era the the school of statesmanship uh, not because history provides you with a cookie cutter uh, that allows you to you know replicate uh, you know, from different past historical experiences, prescriptions for what one should do now. In that sense, history, I don't believe is a policy science. It's not prescriptive, but it does give you a range of different human responses to different kinds of situations and helps you, I think, uh, reach better judgments about what people might or might not do in specific situations uh, that you have to face in, in government. And in, in that sense, I think we've both had the experience from kind of different ends of the telescope of having both the historical uh, experience uh, and knowledge and then the practical application at various points in our lives. And that's, to me, the thing that, uh, you know, has bound us together. Yeah. I think um, two other things. One, one is, I would say, uh, and, and my own limited government experience has very much reinforced this. I, also, I would say my uh, my experience as a dean, did you really see the importance of personality to include character? And you acquire a respect for contingency, that things don't have to turn out in a certain way. And I, it's one of the things that has uh, made me more and more wary of, uh, particularly of, of attempts to reduce foreign policy and international affairs to very simple and abstract political science dicta. I think history teaches you just the reverse and practical experience even more so. I think the other thing, and this is, uh, again, this may lead us into discussing some of the issues of the day, is without on the one hand being wild-eyed idealists, we, we both have a very strong sense of the moral dimension of foreign policy, while at the same time understanding the world is what the world is. And one has to be realistic about it. I mean, you're, you, you have a whole bunch of proverbs, which I uh, often uh, quote, usually with attribution. Things like that, the art of diplomacy is, uh, is the art of saying nice doggy while you look around for a rock. And I think that's, that's one of the things that is hardest to keep in balance, that awareness that on the one hand, there has to be a moral dimension for a whole bunch of reasons you wouldn't want to be Talleyrand uh, or Metternich. But in any case, if you're an American, you really can't be because that's just not the nature of our system. 
On, on the other hand, you do have to deal with the world as it is, and you do have to deal with imperfect solutions, and sometimes with even with moral compromises. And um, that's, to my mind, that's one of the most interesting things about American foreign policy, more, more than the foreign policy of most other countries. We, we have to balance both. I know I, I agree with that. And on the personality side, you know, I think you and I have both had this conversation, which is that when you think about the various meetings we attended in the Situation Room, you know, meetings of uh, the principals, the National Security Council principals, or the deputies, the sub-cabinet level uh, members, that if you went around the room and put a little cartoon bubble over everybody's head with their IQ, uh, the variance would be very minor. You know, everybody in there, with a few exceptions, is usually pretty smart. But if you had that same cartoon bubble over their heads with their emotional intelligence quotient, uh, the variance would be a lot greater. And so the, the role that personality uh, plays in this really, you know, can't be uh, gainsaid. I don't think at all. At all, it's 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 uh, hugely important. The, you know, the other thing I admire about you, and of, of and you won't be surprised by this, I think, is that you're really a polymath. I mean, you know, again, you're a political scientist by trade, but uh, your interests are very Catholic with a small C, which is why you're now writing a book about Shakespeare and and strategy. So, and as you know from indulging me on our trips to Paris, where I tried to buy up every possible uh, work you know, written by Raymond Daron, the great French scholar, strategist, and polymath. Uh, you know, I deeply admire people who have that kind of intellectual breadth. Well, I, you know, I could sling the uh, the compliment back at you in the same way, but I, th- I do think, let, let's maybe um, go a bit beyond mutual admiration, however sincere. Look, I, I do think it's true that both of us have this commitment to high Western culture, particularly the culture of the last 20th century, and, you know, just in terms of things like our reading tastes and so on, and the degree of background knowledge that we feel one has to have in order to think clearly about foreign policy and not just Western cultures, but but, but all cultures, the, the need to be intellectually broad and as deep as one can be. And like you, I, you know, I always feel somewhat inadequate. And I, uh, that's why, uh, you know, you and I would always be going into bookstores and coming back with loads, loads of books and trying to smuggle them in past our suspicious uh, wives. But I think it's fair to say that that's going to be less and less common in the future. I mean, we are the product of um, really, in some ways, the middle of the last century, in terms of who our teachers were, even who our parents were, what our reading habits were, do you think I'm being too harsh if I say that the, the policymakers of the future are probably less likely to be deeply read in that broad cultural way, or am I just being a snob? Well, I think um, you know. I think there's two sides to the story. I think in I think there's still pockets of this uh, that exist, in, including at places like SICE. Uh, where there's an effort to instruct students in, in that kind of approach intellectually to the problems of national security affairs. Uh, but I think there's been also a secular decline in the secondary education system. So people don't uh, read history. Undergraduates don't, uh, you know, by and large major in history. The, the, if you look at the numbers, the numbers of students majoring history has dropped uh, dramatically over the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, so I, I do think there are there are going to be challenges going forward as people try to 
bring to bear uh, some of that, you know, you, you probably recall that in the closing passage of uh, the late Charlie Hill's book on, on grand strategy, he quotes Henry Kissinger saying to him, well, who reads books anymore? And I mean, I don't think Dr. Kissinger would mind my recounting that when you and I were putting together our first course, uh, Diplomatic Disasters at SICE, and you told him that we were going to be, among other things, studying the second Moroccan crisis, he said to you, you know, Elliot, who who studies the second Moroccan crisis anymore? Um, so, I mean, I think he said that admiringly, but... Um, he, did, he did, actually. I mean, he, he was... Uh... He, he was pleased by it. But, you know, look, it's also true that our reading habits were shaped um, and were thoroughly formed before the Internet became a thing. Uh, and, I, you know, I just and I'm, this is not a pejorative comment about people who are younger, but just the fact is most people are acquiring their information by doing a lot of surfing of uh, the Internet with all of its extraordinary riches of uh, things to read. And that's not the same thing as plowing through a stack of books. I want to go back to something that we were talking about earlier, and maybe I can use this as a segue to get us talking about the world of today. You know, one of the things I took away from my experience of working with you in government was so much depends. I, I decided I, I didn't agree with that famous Graham Allison dictum, where you stand depends on where you sit. In other words, that bureaucratic positioning really determines the positions you take. And instead, it seemed to me that government is driven much more by leagues of like-minded people who, yes, will have different vantage points, you know, state and defense will not always agree on all sorts of things. But if you have people who have similar sets of values, a similar frame of reference, in some ways, you're going to be a lot better off because you can coordinate things a lot better. And I th I, I do really do feel that that was the, the experience of the last few years of the Bush administration, not just uh, where I personally or, or you personally was involved. A, do you agree with that? And But B, I'm curious to know, what do you think from what you can tell now of the Biden team? And how would you assess them from that point of view? It's a great question. And so first on, on the general point, the picture that people have sometimes of the interagency process when it's described in government is of these sort of titanic uh, clashes uh, you know, between defense and state or between the NSC and, you know, some other, you know, the CIA or some other, you know, uh, agency or element of the government. And I always, it, it, during the course of my career, was tried to be aware of the fact that every day there were going to be a panoply of new subjects, you know, on the agenda. And someone who might be my bureaucratic ally one day was going to be, you know, on the other side the next day, but maybe back on my side on some other subject. And so I uh, tried to paraphrase Palmerston, you know, I tried to have no permanent enemies. I mean, I didn't have permanent allies either, but I tried to have no permanent enemies in government and to try and work with people who were like-minded on different issues to try and accomplish different things. So I, I, I do agree. On the more specific question of the Biden team, I will confess that I've been a little bit surprised that they have not done quite as well over the course of the first year as certainly I hoped they would do, but even as I anticipated they would do. Um, and maybe you can get into some of the reasons why uh, why their performance has been perhaps less than some of the parts, in the sense that all of the people uh, are are bright, capable, um, have experience at, at senior levels. Yet the performance has has been you know sort of just less than one might certainly might have hoped. And 
I think there are a couple of reasons for, for that. I'd be interested in what, whether you agree with that. Let me just start with one. I think that the team that President Biden has arrayed around himself is not a team of rivals, as Doris Carnes Goodwin famously depicted Lincoln's Civil War cabinet, and as President Obama tried to create by you know, bringing Hillary Clinton on and having Joe Biden as his vice president and others who had been you know, in, in politics with him. This is really a, a team that is by and large united by personal service to Joe Biden. And in that sense, it, it's sort of uh, rather than a presidential national security team, it's sort of the greatest Senate staff ever. And I'm not sure that model works when you're trying to execute a policy in part, because I don't think there's anybody in that group who's a peer of the president who can walk in and say, Mr. President, you either really screwed something up here or that what you're proposing really is going to take us in the wrong direction. We need to think about X, Y, or Z. And I'm just curious whether you agree with any or all of that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, I've never quite liked the uh, team of rivals phrasing because, you know, <laughs> fr- frankly, they caused uh, Lincoln an enormous set of headaches. I mean, there were, he had some very, very strong personalities who were soon united by a devotion to him. And, the, you know, the ones I would pick out would be William Seward, the Secretary of State, and then uh, later on Stanton, the uh, Secretary of War, uh, both of whom had had their own ambitions, but really push those aside in, in, in commitment to, to uh, Lincoln. But the, but the point is there that I think Lincoln could, could accept and in, felt perfectly comfortable with people who were strong personalities who would uh, be laying out different views, uh, sometimes opposed views. And, and then he was, you know, quite comfortable then making a decision. I don't get the sense that Biden wants that. There have been presidents who have. Uh, I think the one who never gets nearly enough credit is Gerald Ford, who had some extremely strong personalities in his cabinet, who disagreed with one another, including, of course, there's George Shultz, you know, who was a forceful character, and Kissinger and others. And um, Schlesinger and, and Rumsfeld. Schlesinger. There was no shortage of powerful figures there. Right. And he made it clear that that was just fine. I don't think Biden does that. And so part of, I mean, I'm like you, I'm disappointed. I think Biden turns out to be more stubborn, uh, more willful, more certain that he is right, uh, more testy, I think, than I anticipated. And I don't know if that's personality or age, which it could be. Uh, I think we all get a little bit testier the older we get. Uh, but whatever it is, I think that's, uh, that, that is missing. And I think when you go through the personalities one by one, as admirable as they may be, as individuals, they're not likely to do that. I mean, uh, you know, Tony Blinken, very bright, very charming, uh, right, right views on a lot of things. Still, you know, he worked for Bi- for Biden this whole time, and right. he's, that doesn't make you the one who's likely to say you're wrong. Lloyd Austin, you know, good, solid, loyal general. That doesn't mean that you're going to be a Casper Weinberger or you know somebody like that, or Don Rumsfeld or Dick Cheney. And, and so on. So, you know, I I think that's really or Bob Gates or Bob Gates. There's also a, there's another dysfunction though, which I find a little bit more concerning, um, and that is that, that they just don't seem to be welded into a team. So, for example, I think like you, I suspect I was very much in favor of AUKUS, this this deal with Australia and uh, the UK that Australia should have nuclear submarines makes perfect strategic 
sense. There's no question about that. Best thing they've done since they've been in office. It was a great move. Um, and it was initiated by um, somebody we both know well, Kurt Campbell, who's terrific. But, you know, we did it at the expense of really dissing the French, who uh, can be difficult, but are also extremely valuable allies and have had a reason to feel displeased about it. And nobody has said this to me, but the sense that I get is that within the administration, the attitude is, well, okay, this is Indo-Pacific shop at uh, the White House's policy. This is not our problem. Well, it's, you know, it's a whole of government problem by definition whenever you do it. Now, the one thing I will say, though, is when I look at the Ukraine crisis that we've been living through, it seems to me they've been better on that score. I mean, it feels more, as the British would say, joined up. And I think that's because it really is potentially an extremely serious crisis that has everybody's attention focused and not just a, an opportunity to do something smart. I generally agree with that. Let me make a couple of points. One, on the AUK-US deal, which I completely agree with you, is just a real achievement, a great accomplishment, but uh, flawed by the failure to really do due diligence on the ramifications with other allies, notably including the French. And here's why I think that that was such a, a mistake. First, you know, you could imagine the argument being made, and I would suspect Kurt, if he were with us, would make this argument. In the end of the day, who cares what the French think? They're not really a, you know, a big, a big player here. But I do think, I mean, the French are an Indo-Pacific power. They've got, uh, you know, overseas domains, and they've got a lot of citizens there, and they've got some military forces there. So if we want, as we should, the EU to be lined up with us in dealing with China, part of the answer is going to be getting the French you know, on our side and have them help us get uh, the rest of the Europeans aligned. Secondly, you know, as you know well, Elliot, the, the U.S. Navy relies on highly enriched uranium for its uh, nuclear propulsion. And it already has, it is already facing uh, some problems with the limits of access to highly enriched uranium in order to propel our submarines into the future. I can't imagine that the submarines that Australia is going to build are going to be powered by HEU. They're more likely going to be powered by LEU, in part because of the proliferation concerns that people have about HEU being in the hands of a country like Australia, which did at one point have, you know, a nuclear program and considered its own independent nuclear deterrent as late as the 1970s. And guess what the French, you know, nuclear subs are powered by? LEU. So, you know, with just a little bit of time and attention, you know, there was a potential win-win-win here that could have been orchestrated uh, that would have made this much smoother, better, um, you know, I think, outcome. So that's point one on the AUK-US. On the uh, Russia-Ukraine part, I, I certainly agree that as we sit here today, you know, in sort of late January, that they uh, have done reasonably well, particularly the last few days. I do think it started a little rockier uh, when you think back on the whole administration's one-year uh, term. I think they very much wanted to try and put kind of Russia to one side so that they could focus on China. Uh, that's part of their interim strategic guidance, you know, that the real long pole in the tent of uh, strategic competition is with China. And for instance, they've tried to rebrand all of this. So in the late Obama administration, uh, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter started talking about the return of great power competition, even though the White House told him to stop talking about that. 
Um, and in the Trump administration, that was very explicitly the framing for the national security strategy and national defense strategy of the Trump administration, great power competition. You know, the Biden administration has tried to kind of rephrase it as long-term strategic competition without you know any great powers being in it. Obviously, it's all kind of aimed at China. And I think there are a couple of downsides to that. One, it provokes a sentiment among people like Putin in Russia about what about us? We still matter. We're still a great power. And I think, you know, offering Putin a summit uh, without, you know, any requirement on his part to do anything constructive was maybe not the smartest thing to do. I worry that their initial rollover of the new START treaty for five years rather than a one or two year rollover as other people had advised, including the state and defense departments at the beginning of the administration, you know, it was probably seen as a concession for nothing to the Russians, which, you know, suggested maybe a certain kind of pliability that, you know, is now uh, creating other repercussions for them. So I think they started weak, but I think their performance has gotten a lot better over the last two months, certainly. And they've been helped by Putin. So I, I'm, oh, that, that's for sure. I want, I want to seize on just uh, one of the things you uh, said, because it, as, as you know, I, I have my hobby horses and I always appreciate a, uh, an opportunity to saddle up and uh, ride one. And, and that is that to some extent, were they blindsided by, because they were as focused as they were on China and quite appropriately so. And, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently, I'm writing a long piece about this, is there has been a vogue in American foreign policy thinking, really in some ways going back to the Cold War, but particularly pronounced after the Cold War, to try to think very abstractly about foreign policy. Um, and I, I view the current rage uh, for grand strategy as being along those lines. And the uh, to give, you, give away the money graph, uh, as they say from uh, this piece that I'm writing, um, at one point I say, to, you know, to paraphrase Mike Tyson, who said that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Well, er everybody has a grand strategy until Vladimir Putin mobilizes 125,000 troops on the borders of Ukraine. And, and I think that, you know, what that speaks to is, in a way, a misunderstanding of what it's going to take for the United States to successfully navigate this extremely turbulent and uncertain world in which we live, where we just have to be very quick on our feet and nimble and adjusting. And uh, it's going to be more like, it'll be more like judo, I think, than building a bridge. You know, you're just, you're going to have to deal with the player that comes at you and you're going to have to take advantage of the opportunities he gives you and try to mitigate your weaknesses. I think we're just really not, we're not, that's not how we think about it. And we're not particularly good at it. Well, and not to put too fine a point on it, Putin, you know, if you know his biography, is a judo master. So that's, yeah, I, I, <laughs> That's, yeah. Although, although, by the way, on this one, I I think he's, I I don't think this will end well for Russia or for uh, Putin. I agree with that. Speak. I want to go back to something else. I said uh, high enriched uranium uh, made me think of another one of our favorite topics, and that's the JCPOA and uh, the Iranian nuclear program. You and I spent a lot of time periodically being undercut by our own government, trying to mobilize uh, sanctions and, and so forth. But, but I'm not sure you and I ever had a really definitive conversation about, okay, what do we think is actually doable vis-a-vis -vis the Iranian regime and nuclear weapons? What do you, I mean, we know we don't like the JCPOA, uh, the, which is the Iran deal that the Obama administration cut. We both disliked it. We both think the Iranians are really bad actors throughout 
the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. You know, they're, they're Houthi rebels in Yemen firing ballistic missiles at Abu Dhabi. I don't think that technology was invented in the deserts of Yemen. We could go on. And Houthi leaders were in Tehran when it happened. So it's hard to imagine that there was no... A coincidence, I'm sure. Exactly. So look, that's a great, uh, it's a great question because we are, we are where we are now. And it's getting harder and harder, I think, to imagine putting you know the toothpaste back in the tube, given the level of enrichment that you know Iran has. Back in the day, you know, when we were working on this in Bush 43, and that is now, you know, what, 13, 14, 15 even years ago, our colleague Steve Hadley used to say there were two time clocks running. There was the time clock of change in Iran because of concern of the Iranian people with the regime, their disillusionment and more with the clerical regime. And then the other time clock was the nuclear time clock as Iran mastered the various technologies that are required to have a nuclear weapon. And luckily, that you know, of course, building a nuclear weapon, thank God, is rocket science. And it, it's not so much that the science is a mystery to people, but the engineering is actually quite uh, demanding. And that has given us, you know, maybe more time than some people would have anticipated. But I still think that you know, those two time clocks are kind of operative. I still think that the regime is deeply unpopular. I think we haven't done nearly enough to exploit that, to encourage Iranians who have historically taken uh, taken things into their own hands, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, to replace uh, regimes that were authoritarian and, and autocratic, including the overthrow of the Shah in 1979. And, you know, we frankly are with Russia, with China, and with Iran, going back to the show that we taped uh, with your CSIS colleague, Seth Jones, those three countries are actively uh, waging political warfare against the United States. And we have unilaterally disarmed in that dimension. And my view is we ought to be waging political warfare against all three of them. So I, I uh, as you and I frequently say to each other, uh, I agree with that, every element of that, including the commas, the ands, and the thes. But, but you know, here's the, the irony in all that. Quite sincerely, I believe, the Russians are convinced that the color revolutions and all that in Eastern Europe were the result of careful, adroit, cunning, effective American political warfare. And I dare say that there are parallel beliefs in Iran and China. We did do some of that during the Cold War. You know, you think about our support for solidarity, not just the U.S. government, but making effective use of things like the AFL-CIO to support the Polish labor movement. The the irony, of course, though, is that, no, we actually haven't been doing that in any systematic way. There is no reason why we couldn't and why we couldn't do it actually quite effectively, because at the end of the day, the product that we have to sell, rule of law, you know, liberty, transparency. It's a much better product than they have to sell. And I quite agree with you. I I think we're heading into a period which I believe is extremely dangerous and and certainly one where America's enemies um, are in some ways stronger and in some ways better positioned than they've been in decades and decades. Um, But so there has to be a process of rearmament. I think that's the only way you can describe it. But it's a different kind of rearmament. Um, and one part of it absolutely should be figuring out, okay, what's the equivalent of USIA, for example, the United States Information Agency? You know, things like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, all, all that stuff. 
I mean, you know, it all means something very different in the internet age, but there are unquestionably things that we can do to put those regimes on the back foot, and we should. But I still want to pin you down on Iran. Which clock is running faster? Well, right now, the nuclear clock's running faster. There is a kind of uh, kind of facile, uh, I think, answer that some people have, which is, well, you know, we'll just have to learn to live with a nuclear Iran because... After all, you know, we lived with the Soviet Union bristling with nuclear weapons, and we managed to deter and contain them. And so we'll just have to do the same thing with Iran. And it has to be easy, right? Because Iran is a lot smaller than the Soviet Union. It's not at the head of an international movement the way the Soviets were, although the Iranians may think they're at the head of an international movement. And so I think that is, I think, the, uh, I would say, the prevailing conventional wisdom that exists about this. Where I think it goes wrong is that in the first instance, the problem is not going to be a nuclear balance between the United States with 1,550 warheads and Iran, which will have at the outset, I don't know, 10, 15, 20, maybe 100 nuclear warheads. But the reality will be a very unstable nuclear balance between uh, Iran and Israel. And then the uh, knock-on effects, what uh, a Senate Foreign Relations Committee report a number of years ago referred to as the chain reaction, which will lead to Saudi Arabia, UAE, maybe Egypt, maybe even Turkey, Turkey uh, developing their own nuclear capabilities, uh, which will make the region more dangerous, less manageable, and raise, I think, the potential that nuclear weapons will actually get used. You're talking about a bunch of countries living cheek by jowl. It's not like 30 minutes of flight time by ballistic missile from the Soviet Union to the United States in the Cold War. You're talking about four to five minutes and uh, you know, from launch to and detection to impact. Um, and so the odds of nuclear weapons being used in anger in a very crucial part of the world uh, seem to me to be likely to go up exponentially if Iran actually ends up getting that nuclear weapon. I, I think people are not thinking through the potential downsides and consequences very clearly. Yeah, there's, there's also the, the psychological consequences. I mean, if an Iranian regime with nuclear weapons, I think, is one that feels um, protected in a way to do the other things that it wants to do. And it's already doing. It's already trying to. It's already trying to subvert all of its neighbors. But but I think they'll be you know willing to take further risks, and there, there's everything that could follow. You know, one just to follow on a pull on another thread here. You know, we we talked a bit about political warfare and so on. One of the challenges. One of the reasons why one simply can't rely on the Iranian regime, or for that matter, the Russian regime, to collapse of its own accord, despite the fact that they you know, are economically unsuccessful and corrupt and uh, repressive and all that. The, the thought that strikes me is that the, you know, what the, uh, I guess what the Greeks would call the techne of repression has gotten so much more sophisticated, whether it's technology or organization or tactics. And the bad guys share this stuff, and they're very good at it. I mean, the Chinese for sure, but also the Russians and indeed the Iranians. And that, I think, unfortunately, is one of the lessons of the of the last major set of um, demonstrations that you had in Iran well over a decade ago was I, you know, I interviewed a former student of mine who happened to be there on the ground. And I was just really struck by his description of just how professionally and effectively the, the police went about uh, nabbing leaders and controlling crowds, and intimidating people. 
you know, you don't, they don't have to rely on mass terror in quite the same way that they did before. You know, you look at the Chinese regime, which is extremely repressive. They're just extremely skilled at doing things like pressuring people through their families, all kinds of financial things they can do and so forth. And, and that, I, I don't think we've fully accepted that. There's a, there is a kind of naive belief that the good guys are always bound to win because they're the good guys. And perhaps this is another view that we share is the good guys don't necessarily win because they're the good guys. Yeah, I mean, this goes back, obviously, to the show we had with uh, with our friend, our mutual friend, Ann Applebaum. Um, the bad guys are are winning right now for many of the reasons you just you just articulated. You know, I think we've been complacent because the information revolution beginning in the 1980s, uh, the telecommunications revolution, was an important part in undermining the Soviet Union and bringing the Cold War to an end without anybody firing a shot with essentially our adversary, you know, collapsing. Now, a lot of that had to do with people in the uh, Eastern Bloc and in the in the Soviet Union. Some of it had to do with things we did to help empower them. Some of it had to do with circumstances we created through controlling technology that got into the East Bloc, et cetera. But I think it led to a sort of facile conclusion that all these technologies ultimately, you know, benefit the good guys. And as you just said, at the current circumstance seems to be that, you know, whatever that might have might have happened in the 80s and 90s, the bad guys have figured out how to make the technology actually work for them, you know, rather than for the dissidents and for the folks who want to see freedom and uh, democracy and liberty and all those uh, good things happen to their societies. Elliot, I want to go to one other issue um, that we haven't talked about, but I kind of think is almost the elephant in the room about the first year of the Biden administration, and that's, you know, Afghanistan. Both you and I spent a lot of uh, time in our time in government on Afghanistan in the Bush 43 administration when we were working together, traveled there together. How, you know, first, how did you feel? Now, I mean, I, I really want to, you know, typically we don't talk about our emotions on this, but I know that I went through a lot of emotional turmoil in August uh, over yeah. this. And I'm just curious uh, whether you did the same. I, um, I usually don't lose sleep over international events. I I had trouble sleeping that week. I had trouble sleeping for a couple of reasons. One, I kept on thinking about people who I knew and respected, Afghans, who I'd met on my trips over there and think to myself, my God, they're probably going to get killed or tortured or tortured and then killed. And then I, I had just wrenching uh, exchanges with former students who had served there. Um, in fact, I, with his permission, I, I published a piece in the Atlantic, which was a letter from a student who was former student who had been over there in a really difficult place and lost friends, trying to make, to make sense of it. You know, it's it's not the first time that uh, foreign policy has touched me personally, and I, I mean, the first time was when my oldest son went off in a light infantry brigade to Iraq. You know, to fight a war that I'd been in favor of, but at a time when I didn't think the war was going well and was saying as much. And I think, you know, part of the challenge for us and part of a behavior we have to model for uh, those who are coming on behind us is, on the one hand, to accept the emotional turmoil and not run away from it, and not deny it or suppress it, but then also be able to step back and be analytic. And that takes a lot of effort. So what I found myself with Afghanistan, I was, I mean, I was angry and deeply upset and deeply saddened on the one hand. And then I also try to step back and say, okay, well, what does this mean? And why did this happen? 
I guess my feeling about it was, you know, you're tempted to say these people are idiots. They are they're awful, and and I don't actually think that was the case. I I think this is some, this was not an act of weakness. This by that by the way, I think is a mistake that uh, Putin is making in his assessment of Biden. The withdrawal from Afghanistan was not about weakness. Uh, it was not about a lack of backbone. It was the consummation of a position that he had long held. And there was even a kind of strategic reasoning for it in terms of kind of clearing the decks so you could focus on the really big challenge, which was China and to some extent now Russia. And the implementation of it, which was, and, and I distinguish very clearly in my own mind between the decision to liquidate the Afghan commitment, which I think was a bad decision, but was one which I understand. I mean, and reasonable people like our friend Carter Malkasian disagree about that. And the execution and the decision, you know, when to do it and the unreadiness of the State Department and the way we dealt with our allies, that's a very different matter. And that was just appallingly badly handled. And it was an act of systemic incompetence by highly intelligent people, some of whom are quite experienced. And that's a, um, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around the compatibility of those two things, but I think one has to. So that, those are my somewhat incoherent reactions. What, what, are you, what were yours and what are yours now? Yeah, I mean, I, I went through a lot of uh, turmoil as well. I was in the process of trying to help a number of people get in contact with various U.S. government agencies trying to extricate people from Afghanistan. I mean, I uh, obviously disagreed with the decision. I, like, I mean, I understand, as you laid out, you know, the rationale for it, and it's clearly something that Biden had been committed to for a long time. My suspicion is that uh, in the administration, most people accepted the fact that it was unlikely that absent U.S. support that the Afghan regime would survive. But I think they thought they had more time and that they could have what was described during the Vietnam era when the Nixon administration was trying to extricate the U.S. from Vietnam as a decent interval between the withdrawal of U.S. combat forces and the collapse uh, you know, of the regime. But what I can't kind of get around is I, I know that from talking to folks uh, in government that as this was all playing out, the intelligence community was continuously shortening its timelines. And there's no doubt that they were telling people that. And moreover, it should have been clear to people that the Afghan security forces you couldn't survive without some of the things that we provided, like contractor support and you know absolutely critical mission planning capabilities that we have that are kind of unique. But which we trained the Afghans to rely on in order to fight. And not to mention, of course, you know, air power, airstrikes, et cetera. So we kind of, I mean, to me, putting on my historian's hat for a second, you know, I'm one of the few people in government who uh, had Bob Comer as a predecessor. He was, you know, my predecessor as ambassador to Turkey, and he was prede my predecessor as undersecretary of defense, you know, multiple times removed in both instances. But he wrote a very famous study for RAND called Bureaucracy Does Its Thing about how we trained the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. And basically what he said is we tried to create a little miniature U.S. Army in Vietnam, disregarding the differences in culture and their ability to fight the way we do, et cetera. And, you know, here, here we are 
sort of 40 to 50 years later, and we've done exactly the same thing. And it should have been obvious to me. This is obvious to you and me when we were going out there that there was no way that the Afghan security forces could operate without the continued partnership, not necessarily in combat uh, directly, but without the partnership of the U.S. military forces. And to me, that was the great failure of imagination to understand that that the army would just collapse absent the infrastructure we had created for it, which we pulled out overnight. And the way we did it, leaving Bagram essentially in the middle of the night and throwing him the car keys, I think brought a lot of dishonor to the country. It was dishonorable. And it grieves me to say that. I think both you and I, except the United States will make mistakes, even big mistakes, but we don't like to think the United States will do things that are dishonorable. I am reminded, what was that saying of Al's that you always uh, used to quote? I'm thinking now of this assumption that they had a decent interval, that if you think that what's going to happen... Yeah, this is, yeah, if if what you want to have happen and what you think is going to happen are the same thing, think again. Yeah, well, that's... uh, some of Al's, uh, some of Al's wisdom with us. So I've got one last thing of my own that I want to raise with you. In addition to everything else, you and I are both political homeless people. <laughs> yes, indeed. We're not. I mean, we're Democrats with a small D, but we're not Democrats with a capital D. We were both appalled by Donald Trump, both right from the outset, and I'm very proud of this. Both you and I were right there at the beginning, uh, writing these letters denouncing him, even while he was still a uh, candidate. We were premature, never Trumpers. Yeah. Uh, so there are a large number of people who will never forgive us for this. So we have we, we both have a long list of former friends. Do you see any future or and how do, how do you feel about being politically homeless? I'll, I'll just say that there's a way in which it does free me to reexamine a lot of my old kind of axiomatic beliefs. And so from a um, from an intellectual point of view, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, well, this is actually kind of liberating. But what do you think? It is uh, one at the same time, liberating, depressing, and not a little frightening. It's liberating. I agree with you in the sense that, you know, I don't feel like I have to justify every idiotic thing that the Republican Party does or that the, I mean, I used to be a Democrat before I became Republican. Now I'm a Whig, I tell people, but, you know, I don't feel like I have I didn't feel like I have to justify everything the Democrats did either. So so there's that element of it. It does provide you with an opportunity to be, I think, a little bit more objective, a little bit less bound by the increasingly rigid party dicta that now have come out. And it's true on both sides, right? So, you know, Liz Cheney's being castigated as not a Republican. She's a rhino by the Wyoming uh, Republican Party. And and Kristen Sinema's being excoriated and written out of the Democratic Party and going to be primaried in Arizona by someone, you know, is like, really? You want to try and maintain a Senate majority, but you're going to primary your senator and, you know, the first Democrat to win a seat there in a long time? Okay. So that, you know, sort of the kind of liberating and depressing part, the the frightening part is that our democratic republic requires two responsible parties, one center left and center right to govern. And when those parties break down, as they did in the 18, uh, late 1840s and 1850s, you know, you ended up with the biggest catastrophe in the history of the country, which was the Civil War, which killed more, as you know more Americans than any other war, and and I think than all our other wars combined. 
And the problem I see now is we've got one party that is problematic because it's enthralled to a a minority in the party. And by that, I mean the Democrats, that the minority progressive wing of the party has managed, I think, to exert influence well beyond its strength among voters to pull the Democrats to the left. And we've got another party, which is has become essentially a cult of personality, the latest evidence of which is the Politico poll this morning that shows that if Trump runs, you know, he has 50% of support against Ron DeSantis with like 24 or 25 or something. But if Don Jr. runs, he's only one point behind DeSantis. I mean, they're running about even. I mean, that tells you how cultish the party has become. And not only has it become a cult, but it's large elements of it have become flagrantly openly anti-democratic. And that, I think, poses enormous peril for the republic. I hate to say it. Yeah, I um, wish I could say I really disagree with you. I'm, I'm probably temperamentally more inclined to clutch at straws. So I see a uh, Eric Adams as mayor in New York, you know, confronting. So in fact, the mayor of San Francisco even confronting some of the craziness on the Democratic left. Um, and you see intellectually, too, the people like our friend Brian Katulis and Peter Jewell and, and many others sort of yep. taking on some of the shibboleths of the left. And then among, on, you know, on the right, uh, again, you know, from an intellectual point of view, the there is a kind of saving remnant that's actually quite articulate and forceful. Largely found in the bulwark and its audience. Yes, of course. But, you know, you do have, I mean, I, you and I differed a little bit about this. You know, I'm kind of glad that Glenn Youngkin is the face of a sort of a state party in Virginia. You don't live in Virginia. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Um, I mean, I've got Larry Hogan, so I'm uh, I'm a lot happier. Yeah, uh, you should be. Uh, than you are. I mean, I'm, I would have been an old-fashioned New England Republican, but that's a separate screed. Yeah. yeah, I'm not really a Whig. I think I'm a Rockefeller Republican. Oh, I wouldn't say Rockefeller. I would say I'm sort of a Leverett Saltonstall, you know, Charles Francis Adams, William Seward kind of Republican. But we can we can quibble about that. It doesn't matter because they're both <laughs> as extinct as the dodo, so... Well, let's hope that uh, let's hope that we're both really wrong on that one because it is a concern. But I will just say it's it's always a joy to talk to you, Eric. It really is. Well, I think we've probably uh, exhausted the first year of the Biden administration. Uh, we will be back in the future with uh, other guests and uh, no doubt other topics to talk about. But for today, that's all from Shield of the Republic. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you, Eric. <laughs>